I've been researching Elvira Barney and have begun researching Edith Thompson, I keep coming across this essay, written by Ms. Marguerite Sidley. It's called A Month in Halloway Jail. She writes about her time in Halloway, and I think it will help us have a good idea about what life was like for these women. I hope you all enjoy this, a guest of His Majesty, A Month in Halloway Jail. Marguerite Annie Sidley was born in Nottingham in 1886, the third child of John and Lillian Sidley, and died in Scotland in 1983. When the family moved to London, Marguerite attended Camden School for Girls before learning shorthand and typing, and taking first place in the country in the Royal Society of Arts typewriting examination. Her interest in the suffrage movement was fired during a visit with her mother to listen to leading suffragists, after which they both joined the Women's Social and Political Union. Suffering from ill health, Marguerite gave up her office job and decided to offer her secretarial skills for free to the cause while her savings lasted. In March 1907, age 21, she took part in a deputation to the House of Commons and as a result spent 12 days in Halloway Prison. In 1908, she joined the Women's Freedom League and worked for them until 1916. During that time, she traveled the country assisting in by-elections and educational campaigns. From 1908 to 1911, she spent between eight and 10 weeks in the summer traveling around the country in the Women's Freedom League caravan. In February 1909, after trying to speak to her MP at the House of Commons, she spent a further month in Halloway, and it is that experience which she describes. In March 1914, she was arrested for speaking from the steps of the Board of Trade Offices in Whitehall and spent a further four days in prison. She was issued a postcard by the Women's Freedom League wearing her WFL enamel flag brooch. The 1911 census lists the entire staff and all inmates of Halloway Prison. One name that stands out is that of Reverend Samuel Reginald Glanville Murray, 1869-1947. Like the governor, the chaplain lived on the premises. Murray joined Holloway between 1901, when he lived in Hammersmith, and 1907, when Marguerite Sidley encountered him during a short first spell in Holloway. Writing after her 1909 stay, she remarked, I knew the gentleman of old and expected that he and I would quarrel over every subject that was introduced into our conversation, and we did. Marguerite found that this official of the prison, who is meant to give spiritual consolation and advice, was in reality one of the most narrow-minded, uncomprehending of men. She has more to say on his prissy shortcomings. Edith Thompson resented his presence intensely because, as she told her parents, the chaplain would continuously press her to confess to being guilty, however much she protested her innocence to him. Murray is the reason why Edith turned to Canon Palmer, a larger-than-life Roman Catholic priest from Ilford, and wanted him to be with her during her last few days. Murray lacked the generosity of spirit to stand aside for Canon Palmer, and so was present during Edith Thompson's last moments. But the horror of that moment of January 9, 1923, turned the flawed conformist into a committed abolitionist. 
When the Quaker prison reformer Marjorie Fry saw him in the governor's office a few days after the execution, she noted, I was greatly impressed by its effect upon all of them. I think I have never seen a person look so changed in appearance by mental suffering as the governor appeared to me to be. Mr. Murray was so much shocked by the whole experience that after retirement, he spent much energy in writing and public speaking in favor of the abolition of the death penalty. In his testimony before Parliament years later, Murray declared, when we all gathered together, it seemed utterly impossible to believe what we were there to do. My God, the impulse to rush in and save her by force was almost too strong for me. So the essay begins. A guest of his majesty, a month in Holloway jail, Marguerite A. Sid. From the moment of the pronouncement of sentence in the police court until that being thrust back into the strife and bustle of life, the prisoner becomes non-existent so far as the world is concerned. Between those two decisive moments, we criminals are dependent upon the national exchequer for our existence. Sentence of one month's imprisonment in the second division was passed upon me at 12.15 on Friday, February 26, 1909. The jailer, an exceedingly pleasant man, very much upset at the treatment meted out to the suffragists, conducted me through long passages to one of a row of little cells to await Mrs. Despard and Mrs. Fitzherbert. At about 1.15, Mrs. Despard was brought to the same cell. Then, our kind friends, who had come to hear our trials, brought us lunch and stood around the door talking to us for some time. This door has a little square opening through which we conversed. Presently, the jailer came to us saying that Sir Albert de Rutzen has sent down a message saying that if we liked, we might travel to Holloway in taxicabs instead of His Majesty's coach, Black Maria, and that we might return to the room where we had awaited our summons to the court. This room contained nothing save a few benches around the walls and a hot water stove. Mrs. Fitzherbert joined us at about three o'clock and about four o'clock, we were informed that two taxicabs were waiting for us. On our arrival at His Majesty's castle, we each locked into a reception cell, very small and dark and ill-ventilated. I was surprised and pleased to see that these cells had been cleaned quite recently, the floors still being a little damp. We waited here some considerable time before being taken across the passage to see the doctor. As we returned to our cells, we saw the matron, who recognized us all as old offenders. Presently, supper was brought round. It consisted of a greasy tin of cocoa, which had a thick layer of oil on its surface, a six-ounce loaf of brown bread, and a piece of meat. I do not know if Mrs. Despard and Mrs. Fitzherbert partook of their supper. I did not. Soon, after seven o'clock, a wardress opened my door and said, Bring your things and come with me. I followed her into a room on the other side of the passage and was handed over to two other wardresses. I was told to go behind a large screen where I found a set of garments and changed my clothes. The blouse and skirt are made of rough, dark green material marked with a broad arrow. The skirts apparently are all made to fit, more or less. The short women and the bodices to fit in like fashion. The tall big ones. The blouse is loose from the collar. 
fastening only by one button. It is put on over the skirt and kept in place by the apron. Consequently, it is always coming up, is loose from the collar, fastening only by one button. It is put on over the skirt and kept in place by the apron. Consequently, it is always coming up, giving one the appearance of a sack tied up in the middle. The apron is blue and white check with red bars. There are two dusters also of blue and white check with red bars, one for a neckcloth, the other for a handkerchief, which must be hung over the apron string as no pocket is provided. Indeed, no pocket would take such a large square. The stockings are made of a dark worsted and are very thick. They also have red bars. It is but seldom that one gets stockings to cover the knees. The shoes are very heavy and clumsy, but in time one gets accustomed to the weight. The undergarments are all so big that one is obliged to use hairpins to make large pleats in them. Surely, some man must have designed the clothing. There is no feminine taste to be found. The one picturesque feature is the little white cap on the head. On reappearing from my shelter, I was weighed, measured, and questioned as to my name, address, place of birth, nearest relative, religion, charge, sentence, etc. My money, watch, brooch, and all articles I had with me were taken from me and an inventory made, which I signed. Then I was given a towel, two sheets, and a pillowcase, all of very coarse, unbleached material with red stripes and brown and broad arrows on them, and told to sit in one of the reception cells. Here I chatted with a wardress while Miss Fitzherbert went through the same proceedings. Mrs. Despard had already been taken to the hospital. The rules were read to us, and we were conducted across a yard to the D ward. We went up to the top of the ward, and we were given our cells. Mrs. Fitzherbert was put in a cell, D, three-sevenths, and I in a cell, D, three-twelfths. Thenceforward, for a month, we were known only by these numbers. The cells are ten foot, six inches by seven feet. In the cell, I noticed at once several improvements. Since my visit of two years ago, instead of a stool, there was a wooden chair. Instead of a tin plate, an earthenware one. And instead of a wooden spoon, a leaden one, which was later changed for a nickel-plated one. In the right-hand corner, as you enter the cell, is a small wooden shelf which serves as the table. Against it, of course, is the chair. The board, which is one's bedstead, stands lengthwise against the wall. The mattress is rolled up and placed on the lower of two small shelves in one corner. On the mattress are the pillows and bedcloths, the latter carefully wrapped around each other. On the upper shelf are found a slate and slate pencil, a case containing prison rules, a schedule of prison dietary, a library card, and a card headed, things which Christians ought to know, a mug without a handle, a small hairbrush, also without a handle, an exceedingly small weak comb, and the five devotional books, the Bible Book of Common Prayer, Hymn Book, The Narrow Way, and A Healthy Home, and How to Keep It. Right through the back of the cell, about eight inches above the ground, is a large hot water pipe. Leaning against the pipe are all the tin articles for toilet use, 
a dustpan and brush, also a bag containing several rags and a piece of bath brick with which to clean the tins. In the center of the back wall, slightly above the pipe, is a small round ventilator. High up in the wall is an oblong ventilator. Both these can be opened or closed as the prisoner wishes. On warm days, the cell is indescribably stuffy and unaired. Immediately above the top ventilator is the window, which of course does not open. It contains 40 panes of glass, four inch squares. By standing on the chair below the window, I could see two other wings of the prison, a large corrugated iron shed, part of the high wall surrounding the prison, and the back of a row of houses. In the door is a small circular piece of glass covered on the outside by, by a black slide. The wardresses can move the slide and look in at any moment of the day or night. Contrary to my previous experience, and greatly to my relief, I found that this peephole was seldom used by the wardresses. The cell is lighted by electric light, switched on from the corridor outside. When I was left alone, I made my bed and was preparing to retire. When I heard a knock and a voice I knew saying, who are you? Thereupon ensued a brief conversation and I found that my neighbors were also members of the Women's Freedom League. The day's routine. At six o'clock next morning, I was awakened by the clanging of a bell and the switching on of an electric light before I had completed my toilet without the aid of a mirror. The door was unlocked and a wardress said, any applications? Meaning, did I want to see the chaplain, governor, matron, or doctor? Then I was allowed to fetch a clean water. I took in a pail of water with a scrubbing brush and floor cloth that one of the ordinary prisoners had put against my door, rolled up my bedding, cleaned my tins, and washed my floor. At about 7.15, breakfast came round. This was a six ounce loaf of brown bread, two ounces of butter, this lasted all day, and a pint of the most appalling tea imaginable. It tasted like a mixture of tea and cocoa. At 8.20, the door was again opened by the wardress who said, chapel and passed on to the next cell. I took my prayer and hymn books and went with the others to the chapel. Here, for the first time, I saw the majority of my fellow suffragist prisoners. We sat to one side of the pulpit, out of sight of most of the ordinary prisoners. On this first morning, I could not look at the hundreds of faces in the body of the chapel. One has to grow a little used to the prison before trusting oneself to that. Chapel lasted 20 to 25 minutes. On returning to my cell, I found the librarian had left me two books, an educational book and a novel. These books were changed twice a week. At 9.45, some of us went out to exercise, the remainder going down to the ground floor and sitting in rows of associated labor. Most of us made night dresses, but a few knitted socks. In my month, I made ten and a half night dresses and knitted half a sock. I consider I well earned my board and lodging. At 10.45, those who were out on exercise came into work and the rest went out. The exercise is simply walking around a yard, sometimes a large rectangular one, but mostly a small triangular one. From the former, we could see the top back windows of some houses. In one of these lives a sympathizer who had been placed outside her window a green, white, and yellow flag 
of the Women's Freedom League and a purple, white, and green flag of the Women's Social and Political Union. Naturally, these caused great excitement. One day, we saw our friend leaning out the window, waving other flags of the colors. It was impossible not to wave in return, and each time we passed within sight of our waving sympathizer, we waved our handkerchiefs in greeting. This greatly vexed one of the wardresses on duty, who said we were mad, ridiculous, etc., and told us to behave properly. We saw no improper behavior in waving to our friend, and continued to do so until our hour of exercise was over. We were all reported to the officer in charge of our ward. Since then, we were not allowed in that yard, but were kept strictly to the small triangular one to which the sun seeks an entrance in vain. At 12 o'clock came dinner, six ounce loaf of brown bread, six ounces of potatoes, a few carrots, greens, turnips, onions or beans, an egg, and a pint of hot milk. A knife was handed in for each meal. This knife is a piece of tin about six inches or so long and two inches wide with narrow hem around the edges. It refuses to cut anything except butter. On these knives were written sentiments, ennobling and otherwise. We were left severely alone until nearly two o'clock, when we were allowed to wash up mugs, plates, and spoons at the sink halfway up the gallery. At about 2.30 or 2.45, we went down again to associated labor until 4.45. Then we were brought a basin of hot water, the only hot water during the day. Supper came at 5.15. This was six ounce loaf of brown bread, a pint of that dreadful cocoa, which I refused. Later, I asked the doctor for milk instead. I must say that I noticed a very marked improvement in the food upon that given us two years ago. The eggs were good and the vegetables were not diseased. After tea, we were left alone. We usually spent this time in reading and holding frequently interrupted conversations through the wall. At about nine o'clock, just when we were all dropping asleep, the night wardress came around and knocked at the door until she received an answer before putting out the light. When complained to about this, the matron said, it is to see you are not dead, quite forgetting that if one were dead, knocking would not give back life. This was our daily round. There was but very little variety. Wednesdays were looked forward to with joy, for then we were allowed a hot bath and clean clothes were sent around. On the first Tuesday of my captivity, one of the ordinary prisoners said to the member of the Women's Freedom League, things are different since you suffragettes came, since you suffragettes came here. God bless you all. That message cheered us tremendously. We were so delighted, so thankful to know that we have really made life in prison a little easier for the women who are sent there. And I noticed that the wardresses are much kinder than they used to be. Some of them are exceedingly kind, humane women. Of course, there are others who are very cruel, always trying to get not only prisoners, but wardresses in trouble. One day, several of us were reported to the governor for talking. The head doctor came round, examined us, and told the governor which of us could stand being shut up for two days in her cell. One or two were given two days, close confinement. One was sent to the hospital for two days, and I was merely cautioned. Occasionally, one of our number would be sent to the hospital for a day or two, and on her return would give us news of the suffragists there. 
In this way, we learn with joy of Miss Despard's release six days after her imprisonment. According to the rules, a second-class prisoner is not entitled to receive a visitor until she has been 28 days in prison. However, my father had some family business to discuss with me and was able to have two interviews of 15 minutes each with me. A wardress being in the room all the time. Other suffragists also had visits from their friends. Some of our members belonged to the Unitarian Church and their spiritual advisor was permitted to visit with them twice a week. Thus news of the outside world filtered to us in various parts of the prison. On Sunday morning, February 28th, when we went out to the exercise, we found the pathway in an exceedingly dangerous condition. It was almost like walking on ice. One of our members, Mrs. McDonald, slipped and fell. Another suffragist helped her to rise. Putting her foot to the ground caused intense pain and she had to go indoors without assistance. The wardress who accompanied her, not dreaming of giving her a helping hand, however, there was a very kind office inside who helped her to help herself and did what she could to ease her. But it was not until eight o'clock at night that our friend was taken to the hospital. Then it was found that her knee was injured, also her spine, her thigh broken, and she had also sustained an injury. Afterwards, on slippery days, sand and ashes were thrown down the pathway. When Mrs. McDonald was released on March 18th, she was taken to a hospital and is being kept there at the government's expense. It is feared that she will be lamed for life. At church, army missioner to hold an eight days mission in the prison. He was a very sincere, well-meaning man, but quite incapable of helping women. At church, army missioner came to hold an eight days mission in the prison. He was a very sincere, well-meaning man, but quite incapable of helping women. Every sermon contained two or three illustrations, all from the lives of men. One day he talked about the great liberty we enjoy in this country, political, social, and industrial liberty, such as no other country in the world can boast. A suffragist sent for him and explained what liberty the women have. He confessed quite frankly that he had never worked with women. He did not understand women and he knew nothing about women, and yet he was sent as a missioner to a women's prison. On the first morning of one's imprisonment, one is honored by a visit from the chaplain. I knew the gentleman of old and expected that he and I would quarrel over every subject that was introduced into our conversation, and we did. I found that this official of the prison, who is meant to give spiritual consolation and advice, was a, in reality one of the most narrow-minded, uncomprehending men, he said to the one of our Women's Freedom League prisoners, that unless she believed in certain Church of England doctrines, she was of no use to anybody in the world. And once he dared to say to that chapel, full of women, that a woman must never, under any circumstances, whatever, leave her husband. He showed over and over again that he knows nothing of a woman's life, of a woman's trials, nothing of the life of a class of women that is usually found in prison. I longed so much to put one of our suffragists in the pulpit. In five minutes, she would have those women in touch with her, whereas neither the chaplain nor the missioner over succeeded in moving them. On Fridays, after saying the litany, we practiced the hymns for Sunday the chaplain beating time with a pointer. One Friday, the volume of sound was not quite so great as usual, 
and the chaplain requested everyone to sing in much the same tone and words that a school teacher uses. Finding this request had no effect, he said, before leaving the chapel in a very displeased tone of voice that he hoped everyone would sing on Sunday. I do not want to mock at religion, but I do say that in prison, the only religion we got was from the missioner and that was not made to bear on women's lives. It was not a religion that helped women. I must say for the chaplain that I never saw a man go through a service looking quite such a martyr. One day, I was so irritated by the sermon that on returning to my cell, I wrote on the back of my door in lead pencil a parody of a hymn we had sung. Of course, I had no business to have a pencil at all. Now, the sight of one piece of writing made me realize that the door was a delightful writing board, and I proceeded to put thereon quotations from Shakespeare, Tennyson, Carlyle, verses of suffrage songs, suffrage sayings, mottos, etc., until there was no spare inch left. It was, as I told the governor, a very interesting collection. It was on Monday morning that I was reported for decorating my door. When the governor came, instead of charging me at once with this, as I expected he charged me with speaking in chapel on Sunday afternoon, a thing I had not done. Consequently, I denied the charge most emphatically. The wardress declared I had spoken and the governor said, well, you must have one day's closed confinement. That will do for all the times you have spoken and not been reported. This procedure is exactly the same as that of the police court. A paid official says you have broken a law and you are punished, whether you are guilty or innocent. Indeed, a prisoner is quite helpless, absolutely in the power of officials. Therefore, I was very glad that there was another charge to, the, to be brought against me. Two days close confinement was my punishment. This means that I was not allowed to go to the chapel, showing that chapel is considered rather as a relaxation than a religious exercise, since a refractory prisoner should be allowed extra chapel instead of none, to exercise nor to associated labor, nor was I allowed to fetch clean water unless all the prisoners were safely shut in their cells. I heard the governor, matron, and wardresses go to the next cell. Number 13 had already had two days close confinement for writing on her knife, an offense committed by all, us all, but number 13 was caught in the act. Since then, she had been given a new knife and had written a lengthy poem thereon. She was also falsely charged with talking in chapel and with writing with a knitting needle on the back of her door and on the walls of her cell. For these three offenses, she received two days close confinement. Being next door to one another, we talked through the wall when the rest of our party of prisoners were either taking exercise or at associated labor. During this time, we let our needlework take care of itself. There were two things I complained very bitterly about to the governor of the prison. One was there was no woman doctor. In an institution containing about 600 women, surely at least one resident doctor should be a woman. I petitioned the Home Secretary to have the baths enameled and to keep them coated always with enamel. Anyone will know that baths without any sign of enamel cannot be kept clean and healthy. The baths in which we had to take our weekly tub were in an abominable condition. It must be remembered that thousands of women 
of us all kinds and us all classes use these same baths. The Undersecretary of State replied to my petition that he had inquired into the subject thereof and saw no cause for interference. I wish that gentleman had been obliged to visit that prison and make an inspection himself. I see from the Daily Telegraph on March 24th that, in an answer to a question raised in the House of Commons by Mr. Swift McNeil, Mr. Herbert Samuel said that the majority of our complaints were unfounded and that some of the minor ones had been attended to. Very few complaints were made to the Home Secretary. The only changes made were those of the spoons and cooking of our beans. At first, these were cooked with bacon fat. The suffragists had all asked for a vegetarian diet. Consequently, we complained to the governor at the, doc at the doctor who ordered that meat fat should not be used in the cooking of our food. After a few days imprisonment, one began to grow accustomed to the sight of numbers of women in prison dress and able to look at them with, at any rate, outward composure. And as one looked and studied those faces, one saw that there were women of all kinds and all ages. Some quite young girls, some old white-haired women, some with open, innocent faces, faces, some with hardened, bad faces. One could trace all the changes wrought by prison life on these faces and characters of these victims. There were the innocence and purity, the pained, surprised, the shame, the sullenness, the indifference, growing harder and harder, and then the badness. And I thought, what a terrible crop we are sowing, a crop of evil instead of good. In prison, one cannot help but see that the whole system is rotten to the core, that it is one that crushes out everything that is good and develops everything that is bad in the character. With such a system, how can we wonder that our prisoners prisons are full, and how dare we continue peacefully to go on our way and stir not a finger to help the thousands of men and women who are being ruined by us? There are women in Holloway who have no business there, who ought never to have been sent there at all. There were women in prison during the whole of the month I was there on remand, still awaiting their trial. And these women were treated as criminals, most of them wearing prison dress and all of them subject to prison discipline. And in this country, we say we treat man or a woman as innocent until proved guilty. Oh, what a bitter mockery. One girl there was mentally deficient. Anyone looking at her could see that. A wardress told me she had terrible outbreaks of swearing and could not help herself. And we in England sent a mentally deficient girl to an ordinary criminal prison instead of a home where she should receive proper treatment. Such things as these are going on every day and we do nothing to remedy them. Characters are being ruined by national institution all the time and we take no notice. We wonder that men and women get so hardened that they will be sent again and again to prison. It is because the inmates of a prison are taught fear and degradation. They are taught to feel that they can never again respect themselves or anybody else. They are taught to hate all that have power or authority. They are taught to feel that nobody cares what happens to them. That once having made a slip, it is impossible to recover. Let us alter the whole prison system. Let us teach self-respect, faith, love, and kindness. Let us deliberately set out to cultivate all that is good to these unfortunate individuals who are sent to prison and to starve out the bad. Thus and thus only can we hope to cure 
our erring brothers and sisters their disease. Marguerite A. Sidley. Wow, I can see now why everyone has been remarking on this essay. It's a very powerful and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did and I will see you all again really soon.